take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. I am the type of person who, when science class came around, I always tried to skip and go play on the sports teams because math was always really hard for me. Um, I'm so excited to be joined by Eloise Stavance. How are you, first of all? Hello, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm great. I'm really good. How are you? I'm, I'm very well, thank you. It's um, some beautiful weather here in Ottawa. You're in New Zealand, so you're also my first guest who's out of the country. So oh, wow. On, uh, and quite far as well. <laughs> yeah, literally, um, where I'm recording right now, it's six. And we had to figure out you're at 10 a.m. So you're having your morning coffee. Yes, I'm exactly. My evening beer. <laughs> mm-hmm, nice. I could have my morning beer. Oh, but... yeah, I guess that, that works too, eh? Um, it's 12 o'clock somewhere, as they say. Um, I'm so excited for you to join me because you are an astrophysicist. I am. And like to me, I think that is literally one of the coolest jobs you could ever have in the world because space is just one of those things that is so exciting and cool yet most people like myself don't know nearly know enough about it um i love my job so i can't disagree (laughs) with you i'm going to say that (laughs) you know it's like oh yeah we've been to the moon and you know we have uh black holes and like that that's kind of like asteroids and that's pretty much the extent of our knowledge so um i first off want to ask you how did you fall into becoming one of these because that's i can't imagine that's an easy road to go down well that's an interesting question because i kind of fell into it to some extent so I'm actually French, and um, when it came to deciding whether what, what I wanted to do after high school, um, I decided that I wanted to go to university, and I decided that I wanted to go to the UK for university, because the university, university system is a little bit different in France and in, okay. in the UK. Um, and so when I was looking at different places that I could go and what kind of courses that I could do, I realized that I could actually pick an astrophysics course like and not just like a single course in one semester like an entire degree in astrophysics i didn't know that was possible until i was 17 and when i saw that i was like oh my god like i was always interested in space when i was a kid i always watched these documentaries i read those books like i didn't realize there was something i could do and i nearly didn't do it because physics scared me so i was okay at it but the math scared me and i thought i was bad at it and one of my older cousins like much older like he's a half cousin he was like 40 he was like don't limit yourself do not put limits on yourself if you want to do it you do it you see where it goes if it doesn't go anywhere that's fine you've tried it but do not limit yourself and so i actually signed up for the course and then i got my masters and then i saw my phd um, and I never stopped loving it. And that's how I got here. Really? So what, like, do you work at a university now? Is that like, kind of like the job? Like, are you a teacher, professor, um, or, or are you just kind of doing straight research? Right. So right now I'm doing straight research. Uh, I'm what we call a postdoc. So when you do astronomy, when you finished your, your master's, um, to go into research, you like proper research, you need to do a PhD, a doctorate. And once you finish your doctorate, um, you can't really get a, um, a permanent job straight away. You need to do a few postdoctoral positions. And that's where I'm at now. I finished my PhD a year ago. And the postdoctoral position I'm in is 100% research. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean I don't really teach. It means I don't really teach undergraduates, but mm-hmm. I co-supervise students um, but they are research students, so their output will be research. It's just that I help them along the way and we work together to get right. those results. So one of the questions I, I always like to tackle um, when, I, when I'm having a guest on is, you know, when you think of astrophysicists, um, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson comes to mind, uh, Carl mm-hmm. Sager, uh, Brian May uh, from Queen. There's not a lot of women um that yeah. are like that are kind of out there so like how was the journey hard to to get where you're at being you know a woman and, and trying to get in that field was there a lot of women 
in your class? I'm just trying to get a sense of like the diversity in, in the in the field. Yeah, so it is true that we struggle with diversity, diversity in general. So women in STEM is, is a problem, but we also have a strong lack of people of color. Um, that's really problematic as well. Um, so yeah, the, the, the physicist in your mind is a straight white man. Yeah. And that's kind of where it is. Um, so it is a struggle to some extent. Um, I struggled with my gender expression when I was an undergraduate. I was very manly. I was not that I, it just, my gender expression goes from one end of the spectrum to the other, but I didn't feel comfortable expressing my femininity right. when I was an undergraduate. And that's just a very personal thing. But there's also a lot of things that you start to realize when you, when you, get on with your research and you really get into the job and you see that you're being treated differently sometimes. Um, so if you're very assertive as a woman, you'll be called aggressive. If you're not assertive enough, you'll be talked over. Um, and there's, in a way, there's no way to win. You know, if you are faced with that kind of, with the classic status quo, you can't win. If you're, <laughs> if you're too gentle, you get, you get fucked. If you're not, if, if you're trying to assert yourself, then, you get called fat bitch or you are too aggressive. Right. Um, and so the only way to actually move forward is to make people aware of all of these unconscious biases that we have, that these stereotypes about certain genders, about, about, um, about different ethnicities, about different cultures and how we react to that. And I was quite fortunate to you know pretty much as many <laughs> people who were aware of these things as people who were problematic. And that's what helped me get to where I am today because you know I nearly left the field, but I didn't because mm. I got that support and it's invaluable. And we really need to get more allies, more men to understand how this system oppresses minorities and how they can help just by being aware, just by seeing what we see and speaking up sometimes on our behalf because if it comes out of their mouth, it will be taken more seriously sometimes. Yeah, because you get that sense a lot with business. Um, and I think outside of academia, there's the, that conversation isn't necessarily had the same as, you know, uh, gender yeah. roles in business. Um, so that's what I was kind of wondering, like if, you know, I, I always imagine like it's hard to be taken seriously uh, as, a, as a woman, um, especially in this field, right? Like, mm -hmm. It's just it, that that would be just a, a just a base perception that yeah, you know, and like it's it's not just being a woman; it's also sometimes being feminine. So yeah, if you're right. if you're a woman, but you're kind of abiding by all of these these codes, these very stereotypical manly things, then you can be taken more seriously than if you're typically feminine, right? <laughs> because yeah. these things are not are seen as illogical or not 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 clever or 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 vain or whatever yeah um and fairly really and um but you know i try to not let that stop me especially when i do outreach i kind of make a point to like wear my nice dress put on my makeup and do all of that stuff because i want to show a different image of what science is and show that you can st still enjoy all of these things that are not stereotypically what you expect from a scientist. Because yeah. we are multifaceted indi individuals. Yeah, I picture Pete, the, the boring, that white guy in like the boring brown suit, just wacky hair. Um, so I, I appreciate like someone like, like yourself coming on and being excited and, and like, getting ready to to tell everybody about all this this wonderful space stuff instead of just like ben uh weinstein being like oh, oh like in, in the lecture <laughs> class you're like oh my god bless him yeah <laughs> um, but see that's that's something as well that we need to take into account it's um because for a long time the narrative was how do we change women how do we make women act more like men so that they can fit in mm. But we need to take a, a step back and look and see and, and ask ourselves, are these behaviors really what we should want from our scientists? Are people who are not really sociable, uh, like the classic kind of stereotype, the, the scientists that can't talk to people, that are a bit abrasive, that don't have as much empathy, that are a bit selfish. Like, is this really what we want from our scientists or do we want them to have that empathy for people that don't necessarily understand the science or don't understand it yet do, do we want our, uh, our scientists to be better communicator to 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 be better at working in teams to not be so individualistic 
um, maybe we can change what we expect of scientists rather than changing what we expect of women in science. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, so you said you're doing research full time. Yes. What are you researching specifically? And feel free to get into as much detail as you want, because I just want to like have my mind ex explode. <laughs> <laughs> okay, feel free to ask as many questions yes, as you want. Please. Okay, so at the moment, I um, I'm working on what we call stellar populations. So it's just a bunch of stars and understanding how they evolve and how they live their life and how they die. Um, and that's how we understand the stars in our universe, really. And the goal of my particular project, ultimately, is to understand where gravitational waves come from and where kilonovae come from. So are you familiar with gravitational waves a little bit? Should I explain that? Yes, because I want to say yes, but then I feel like I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> okay, like, so I know gravity, if I'm thinking of yes. gravity, like my along the lines there. Yes, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> so gravitational waves are freaking awesome. Gravity is really a really special force. And we need to think about uh, the fabric of space-time when we talk about gravitational waves. So every object that has a mass in the universe distorts the fabric of space-time a little bit. Kind of imagine um, a bed sheet that's uh, that's um, pulled like really, really tense between two poles, uh, like flat. And if you put a metal uh, bowl in the middle, it will create a little dip, right? Can you picture that? Mm -hmm. And if you mm -hmm. put a metal ball that's heavier and denser, it will create a, a, a bigger dip and it, will, and it will create a bigger well. Well, the fabric of space-time is the same, but in three dimensions. And that's how you end up rotating around stars. It's because they create that kind of well that things fall into and rotate around. That's how right, okay. uh, the Earth rotates around the sun. That's how the moon rotates around the Earth. Um, but if you get objects that are really, really big and really, really dense, like neutron stars, um, then that well is really, really, really intense and really deep. And if you have two neutron stars rotating around each other, then they're going to, that warp in the fabric of space-time is going to rotate as well, right? And you're going to create waves. Just, you know, imagine you're, you're throwing a rock into a pond and you get these waves kind of spreading um, away from the, from the impact. That's the, that's the same idea. You get these waves in the fabric of space-time. Well, these gravitational waves can be detected now. Since 2015, we have the power to detect these waves in the fabric of space-time. And uh, so if you want to know more, you can Google the LIGO and the Virgo collaboration. They do incredible work. They can detect um, motions in space uh, of the order of 10 to the minus 21 meters, which is uh, <laughs> a one with 21 zeros in front of it, uh, which is really insane. Like the site, it's a thousand times smaller than the nucleus of an atom. Okay, that's really small. It's <laughs> insane. Like I don't, I don't, I don't even understand really how you can measure that kind of yeah. length. Like how can you measure something that is a thousand times smaller than the length of an atom? I don't. It, they are incredible physicists. Anyway, so we can detect these gravitational waves, and like I said, you can get these gravitational waves if you have two very heavy masses in space rotating around each other, right? Um, and so my job is to understand how you get these two masses rotating around each other and then eventually merging. Because when they merge, they create a giant explosion that we call a kilonova. When you get two neutron stars merging, you get an intense burst of light. And in that burst of light, you also create new elements. So you create gold, you create platinum, you create um, uh, bare earth elements, and all of these things that we actually have on Earth, they need to come from somewhere. They didn't come from the Big Bang because the Big Bang only created hydrogen, helium, and trace elements, right? So these things need to come from somewhere. And um, so these kilonovae is something that we've been studying over the past few years. And, uh, and my job is to help my boss understand where they come from, because she's got this really amazing simulation. So she can simulate a million um, solar masses in, in a 
in a computer. So you, you take a million, the equivalent of a million times the mass of the sun, and you divide it up into a bunch of stars, right? Like a mini universe in a computer. And then you make them evolve all together uh, for like millions and millions of years, quote unquote. And, um, and then you see, what they, you see what they do. You see how they evolve. You see how they get together. You see if they merge. You see how they create gravitational waves and all of that stuff. And then you can compare it to our real universe and the real observations that we see from telescopes and from space telescopes. And if it matches, then that means you've understood how the universe works. <laughs> right. um, but, you know, getting to that point is quite, quite a puzzle. <laughs> so, okay. So the sun in our yes. galaxy is a star. Yes. Um, and it's quite big. See, that's my knowledge of space. Yes. When we're talking about these, these giant, uh, what do you call them again? Sorry. The neutron stars. Yeah. The neutron stars how like in comparison to the sun what are, what are we talking about here okay so what's really crazy about the sun is that it's not actually that big for a star i mean it's a bit bigger than average but the sun isn't that special um and neutron stars come from more massive stars neutron stars are actually dead stars and they are the remnant of a much bigger star that um, lived its entire life and then died. So if you get a star that's more than eight times the mass of the sun, at least, at the very least, um, then it's categorized as a massive star. And these will have very different lives. They will live very quickly. So millions of years instead of billions of years, they will burn their fuel really quickly. And then they will uh, die as a supernova. And what happens when they die is that basically they've burnt all of the fuel that they can and when they run out of fuel, then gravity wins, basically. Because stars are big balls of mass, right? And so gravity is constantly pushing everything in. And unless there is something to counteract that gravity, mm -hmm. they would collapse, right? The thing that counteracts gravity is the fusion inside the star. So if fusion stops because you've run out of fuel, your, co your core collapses. When the core of a, of a massive star collapses, the pressure is so dense that the electrons, so the negatively charged particles and the protons, the positively charged particles, have to merge into neutrons. And, and when they do, um, they can be even denser like, than any star of the star in the universe. And so what ends up happening is that one and a half times to two times the mass of the sun is condensed into an object that's only 20 kilometers across. So the sun is in radius 100 times that of the earth. So it's 100 times bigger than the earth in radius. 20 kilometers is the size of a city. So yeah. you take all of that material and you condense it pretty much as much as you can. If you were to condense it further, it would have to be a black hole. It would no longer be a star, right? So it's, it's as dense as it can get. It's the density of a nucleus. And um, and that's, and that's why they have such incredible, what we call potential wells. So that's why they create such incredible um, divots in the fabric of space. And that's why they warp them so much is because of their density. It's how much mass you can fit into a tiny space that really creates that, um, that well. Right. Um, so yeah, they're, they're extreme. Okay. Absolutely extreme. Now, I don't even know if we know the answer to this as, as a human race. Are all the stars in the universe, like, are they already created or do new stars pop up all, new all the time? New stars pop up all the time. It's incredible. So, and you have different galaxies that do different things. Right. So we can classify them in star forming galaxies and what we call quiescent galaxies. So they're, they're just not doing much. Um, most of the star formation in the universe happened millions, billions of years ago. Um, I need to think about this in like uh, 10 billion years ago, something like that. It's just that it's not the scale that we usually think about. We talk about redshift. So mm -hmm. if anyone out there understands what redshift is, it's at redshift too. But uh, so it's about uh, 10 billion years ago that most of the stars in the universe were created. But we still have star formation ongoing. We have star formation ongoing in the Milky Way. Um, oh. And uh, yeah, absolutely. The sun is like a third generation star or something like that. So a bunch of stars like were formed and died and then their gas was given back to space and then that gas condensed again into stars and these stars died and then the sun was born. Um, and we know that because the sun is, you know, it's made mostly of hydrogen and helium 
like was created in the Big Bang, but there's like 2% of its elements that are heavier elements. They're just, they're stuff that has been processed by previous generations of star. There's no way these elements were created in the Big Bang. These come from previous stars that have lived their lives, um, done a great job of making new stuff and then releasing it, releasing it into the universe to make the stars that we have uh, in our solar neighborhood. It's funny when you, when you talk about that, you're like, like when you're conceptualizing it in, in, in my head, at least it's like, okay, like the, the, this one star lasted like 10 years and then went and now the sun and the sun is like this, this thing that has such longevity. I assume that's not the case. I, I, I when you're thinking of the entire, oh, yeah, they last, yeah, they last a long time. So there's kind of a limit to how long a, a, a star, like we think of it today can last. So, um, three million years is kind of the shortest lifetime so the most massive stars live millions of years and three million is about the shortest that they that they can manage um but three million years is nothing on the scale of the universe if you think yeah. about it and that's right? what the thing that like just like blows my mind like you, you even think like the human yes. history timeline and then you put it's it with that 10 billion timeline and then the universe it's like it's it's you can't it's conceptualize insane. it. <laughs> it's very difficult. It's very interesting because the way often how we think about these numbers, we can't think of it on a linear scale. So a linear scale is like one, two, three, four, five, etc., yeah. etc. We usually think of it uh, in powers of ten. So you're like one, ten, a hundred, a thousand, ten thousand, because there is no other way to cram all of these scales into your head and comprehend it as a human because we do not deal with these scales very well. We evolve in, you know, our little three-dimensional world where we just walk two kilometers max or like do our little run and everything. Mm -hmm. And so we can't conceptualize these, these numbers. So we have to think of it. And that's where the, some of the maths and the intuition, the mathematical intuition really helps you um, so that you can think of all of these things. But yeah, it's, it's crazy. And you know, some of the stars in the universe especially low mass so low mass stars don't last uh, sorry last much much longer than the high mass stars some of the star the the lowest mass stars in the universe have lifetimes of trillions of years that are much much longer than the current age of the universe and these stars are pretty much not going to do much in their life they're just going <laughs> to just live their lives very slowly and then it's, i don't know it's going to be what the heat death of the universe and they're going to have done nothing um because they're just so slow and mm. uh and trillion is oh, it's such it, it's it's it, it's such a big number it's very difficult to comprehend do do you or any other scientists ever have that kind of existential dread when you're you know you're doing your work and you're you're thinking of these giant numbers and you know the infinite universe and all these different things like does it ever like like bring you down i think i think i, <laughs> I, think I used to when i was a when I was younger, um, but like when I used to think about it when I was like a teenager, because like I said, I was really interested in that kind of yeah. stuff. Um, but now not so much because I guess it just, ju it just brings perspective to my life. Right. And um, like I'm insignificant in the grand scheme of the universe, but that doesn't bring me down that if anything, it makes me more optimistic and happy about my life because the only thing that matters about my life is what I make of it and what other people in my life make of it. It's, it's not, I, I'm not going to make a difference to the stars in the universe, that's for sure, but I can make a difference in the life of those around me and my community. And the only real meaning to my life is how do I affect the people around me? And hopefully I will do that in a positive manner. <laughs> That's the only thing that really counts in the, in the grand scheme of things on the scale of the universe, because you're right. not affecting those stars. They're just living their lives. They've been living their lives. We will as a race die long before they will. And, um, and we're lucky to observe them, but we're not going to affect them in any way. And I don't know, I find that reassuring to some extent. Mm. It just, it, it gives me more agency to what my life really means. That is, that's a good way to put it. No. <laughs> um, okay. How do you find these stars in, in the universe? Like, is there just some sort of like giant telescope 
that you can like look through there's and like several. you're just like oh look a star yes oh wow there's there's, there's multiple and also we're, we're really terrible at naming things <laughs> <laughs> as a community one of the telescopes i've used a lot is the vlt which stands to, for very large telescope <laughs> Because it's really big. Amazing. <laughs> and there's one that we're trying to get built called the ELT, which is extremely large telescope. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we do things like that. So yes, we have really big telescopes. Um, we've got loads of loads of telescopes. So the reason that we want to build big telescopes is because a telescope is basically like a bucket for life, for light, sorry. Um, the bigger the mirror, the more photons it gets right it's so if you went in the rain with a bigger bucket you just get more water in um so the vlt for example is eight meters in size in diameter which is as big as you can make a single mirror uh what we call monolithic so it's just one 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 block of glass or ceramic rather um we are building bigger things though and so the way that we do that is that we create segments so we've got hexagonal segments and you, then you just piece it together and bam you've got a bigger mirror uh and so we're making things like that uh as well but another really cool thing that we do is we send telescopes to space so the hubble space telescope is in orbit around the earth the james webb space telescope is going to be um not in orbit about the earth it's going to be in orbit around the sun so it's going to go to um, a bit further away um, and these tend to be smaller in diameter because you know you have to fit it in a rocket <laughs> it's really difficult to fit something that's eight meters across in a yeah. rocket um, but uh, but what's really good is they don't have to deal with the atmosphere so that's something that some people don't think about when it's not just about you know, observing at night and then you can see the sky as it is in space. It isn't because the atmosphere is actually really bright. Um, and it also creates a lot of um, pertur uh, perturbations and, um, and we have to account for that. And it makes it, makes it harder to get uh, like HD basically. Putting a, a, a space telescope, uh, uh, sorry, putting a telescope in space is like, it's like get, getting an HD camera. Mm -hmm because you can't get the resolution because the atmosphere just blurs everything. Uh, and there's also wavelengths, so colors, certain colors that you cannot get on Earth. So for example, the ultraviolet, the UV, is absorbed by the atmosphere very, very heavily, which is good for us because otherwise we would burn to a crisp every, every time the sun is out, you know, so it's good for us. Um, but it's really bad for UV astronomy <laughs> because you just can't get that light. So that's why you have to put it in space. So the Hubble Space Telescope is really good at observing the ultraviolet. So all of those colors that are beyond blue. Right. I, I would argue as a ginger, every time I do, I do burn to a crisp. Um, mm, yes. So you're <laughs> lucky that we've got that blanket because yeah. otherwise you wouldn't survive two minutes. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so I'm curious about black holes because those are kind of one mm -hmm. the, some of the things that I guess for people who have a semi interest in space, it's always the thing that that comes up. Yes. A couple of years ago, um, or was it might not even been a couple of years ago? It might have been last year. But we got a picture of it, like the first picture of a black hole. Yes, it was last year. Yes, it was last year. Okay, I don't, the 2020 has taken time out of. Everything. I know it's still March <laughs> in my head. It's like. Um, okay what is a black hole exactly okay well exactly that's hard to say oh, okay. uh, but <laughs> no okay so you remember when i said that um masses like heavy masses and spe especially dense masses in space warp the fabric of space-time and it makes things kind of fall into their little divot and rotate around them mm -hmm. uh, so the next step beyond the neutron star is the black hole and so what happens there is that the, the little well that they create in the fabric of space-time is so deep that if you start falling into it, you can't come out, even if you're going at the speed of light, which is you know, the, the, the maximum speed in the universe. That means that photons, if they start falling into that well, will not come out. And that's why it's a black hole. That's why it's black. That's why it doesn't reflect or emit light it's because it absorbs it all and doesn't doesn't let it come out right. um so that limit of where things can't come out of the black hole is called the event horizon 
Um, and that's uh, and that's why the telescope that uh, took the picture of that black hole is called the Event Horizon. Um, oh, it's called the Event Horizon Collaboration or something like that. That's that's where the name comes from. Mm -hmm. um, now that doesn't mean you can't have things rotate around the black hole because we do. So for you, you can Google that actually. Uh, we've got um, videos of stars rotating around the black hole in the middle of the Milky Way that's at the center of the Milky Way. So then it took like 10 years to get, to get that, that video. And you can see stars shooting past in an elliptical orbit. Um, but for that to happen, you need to be far enough away that you don't actually fall into the well, because if you do, there's no coming back. Um, and so to get a black hole, you need something that's, um, you, you need a lot of mass compressed into a tiny, tiny space. Um, so the, the radius of a black hole uh, given a certain mass is called the Schwarzschild radius. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but there's a mathematical equation that you can calculate uh, the radius of a black hole given a certain mass. So for example, if the Earth was a black hole, if you took all the mass of the Earth and wanted to make it a black hole, you would have to compress it to the size of a marble. Oh, That's okay. the scale that we're talking about. So it has to be really, really dense, denser than any nucleus or atom that we know about. So what's in it? I don't know. Yeah. Um, I'm sure physicists have their own ideas. I don't know whether it's quarks or just, or a singularity as they call it, or just a, a soup of elemental particles. Not sure. Um, because the thing is you can't observe what's in the black hole. That's, that's, that's the thing. You can't right. observe what's in it because no light is coming out. No quote unquote information can come out of the black hole everything that gets into it is stuck and you can't actually probe what's in it. Right. Um, and so that's why they're so fascinating. And they come, so most black holes, um, like stellar mass black holes that are like three, five, 10 solar masses, 30 solar masses, these come from stars and the massive stars that I was talking about earlier. If you've got a really, really massive star, when its core collapses, it doesn't collapse to a neutron star, it collapses even further, it collapses to a black hole. And that's how you get these. Um, now right. to get the very supermassive black holes that are like mil millions um, of solar masses in the center of galaxies, that's a very good question that uh, astrophysicists are still asking themselves. And one hypothesis is that the first generation of stars, um, so that came just after the Big Bang, that was made of that primordial soup of elements, just hydrogen and helium, um, these stars were really, 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 really massive like maybe a thousand, 10,000 times the mass of the sun. And these had very different lives and very different deaths and could create black holes that were very massive and were the seeds of the supermassive black holes that we see today in the center of galaxies. But that's still a big area of research. Right. As a, as a person who, again, doesn't understand much about it, but you know, you listen to... Uh, I'm just going to call them like the, the stoners that are like, whoa, dude, the black holes. But, <laughs> um, is it possible, like, we're just sitting here having this podcast and all of a sudden like a black hole just like erupts and sucks in Earth? Like, is that like a, nah. like a or like, can you like... I can assure you that no astrophysicist is concerned by that. <laughs> okay. All right, well, we're more worried about climate change than we are about a black hole sucking <laughs> up the Earth. <laughs> Um, okay, that's good to know then. Because um, space is really empty. Like to be to be honest, space is vast and it's it's mostly empty. So having a black hole that whizzes by, it will it will be way too far for anything. Right. Okay. Um, to get to uh, an, like answer some of those like commonplace questions that like a lot of people kind of ask and and wonder about. Um, so I don't know if you have the answer, but we'll, we'll just work through it. If not, it's fine. Um, travel to mars i mean that's the one that people kind of always talk about um yeah in your opinion as you know an astrophysicist is that like a viable human you know solution uh to you know problems on earth uh whatever wh what have you i think that the people who use that who claim that it is a solution to the problems we have on earth would like to think that there are no solutions to the problems we have on earth so that they can get an excuse to go to mars mm. <laughs> so i'm not saying that going to mars is a bad idea on the whole um but we shouldn't give up on our planet uh and 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 
fuck off to Mars. To be honest, <laughs> it would it would be it would be extremely difficult if borderline impossible to terraform Mars. I'm not saying right. it's impossible. If we didn't have a choice, maybe we'd find a solution. But it's just it. It would be so much easier to actually get corporations on Earth to do the right thing and and uh, and fix their own issues uh, than think about Mars as a second Earth uh, because it isn't on many uh, many levels. So, for example, Mars doesn't have a magnetic field, um, which is important. The Earth's magnetic field protects us from the sun and some of its uh, outbursts of particles. Um, and that's what keeps our atmosphere there and safe from mm -hmm. the, sol the solar wind. Um, you know, we could create outposts on Mars and that could be, maybe, that could be interesting um, in, the, in the future. But, uh, but thinking about it as a second planet isn't, isn't a good idea. Right. It would be better to use these efforts to fix our shit down on Earth for the time being and then too. look up again. Yeah, <laughs> um, that's the problem with space exploration. Like, it's great, but if we think about it, the space, ex like the the space exploration to the moon, the space race, was a pissing contest between the U.S. and the and the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. It was not driven by scientific inquiry primarily. Like, it did fantastic for scientific inquiry and for technology and for engineering, absolutely. But if we, when it boils down to it, it was a pissing contest between two super, super forces that were trying to show which was the best. And mm -hmm. I don't think this is how we should do science. I don't think this is what should drive us ultimately. Right. So my next question then is, you know, you get the random articles that pop up, whether it's New York Post or I, I don't even like Variety or these .org organizations that will always come up with an article like scientists have found, you know, a, another earth or something that resembles earth that may have life. <laughs> Fact or fiction? <laughs> okay. So I don't want to piss off the exoplanet people, <laughs> but we're a little bit sick of their shit, to be honest. So here's the thing. So when people, so here's what happens. People find other planets that are similar to Earth that is true. Like they're similar in size. Um, they might be similar in their location in their own uh, solar system. So they're not too far out. They're not too close in. But the problem is that the, what the quote unquote habitable zone doesn't mean that there is life on that planet. The habitable zone just means that there can be, there can be liquid water. So there are several problems. One, actually determining whether something in the habitable zone is dependent on certain errors that you can make with your measurements. Uh, and sometimes those are not well constrained. Like, oh, it's, it's within errors, but also like, burning death is with, is with an error. So it's like, okay, you pick that for the article kind of thing. Um, but even if your measurements are uh, all like super tight and everything, and you know it's in the habitable zone, all that means is that there can be liquid water. It doesn't mean that there is. So for the Earth, for example, uh, because if you are in a zone where there can be liquid water, usually when the planets form, um, all of that water is in the form of gas instead of ice, right? And so when a planet like the Earth forms, that water is not going to uh, like come on it naturally. You need something to bring it. So for Earth, it was what we call the late heavy bombardment. So there were a bunch of comets and asteroids and stuff like that that bombarded the planet um, after its formation. And that brought a lot of ice and a lot of water that you know, was then on the planet and could make our atmosphere and our oceans, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. For these planets, we don't know if that's happened, right? So we don't actually know if they have water most of the time. There are certain techniques that can show you that. But if, a, if an article just says, you know, a planet in the habitable zone, doesn't mean it does have water. And then even if it does have water, you don't know if it does have life. Because um, uh, <laughs> you, you usually need very special techniques to detect certain signatures of life. So for example, the ozone in our atmosphere wouldn't be here if it wasn't for life on Earth. So if you were able to detect that amount of oxygen in a, in a planet, 
you could say, oh, there's probably something to it. Um, and then, but then even if you can't do that, you know, you don't know what kind of life you're looking at, even if you could do that. And I don't think it's been done yet. Um, you don't, you don't know what kind of life you're looking at. It might just be bacteria for most of the earth's history. The life that's been on it was very simple bacteria. They're, you know, very good at doing their thing and reproducing and not dying and, and all of that. They're, they're, they're perfect. You know, it, intelligent life is very complex um, and very prone to dying. So, um, so yeah, uh, okay. be mindful. It doesn't mean it's not interesting. It is. Yeah. If anything, it tells you that, you know, our planet is not unique, which a few decades ago, people thought, oh, we're so special. We ain't. We're, we're not that special. Like, let's just put it out there. And it's a good thing to remind people we're not that special. Uh, but it doesn't mean we've found aliens. Mm. So I'm, I'm only going to dumb the conversation down for these next two questions. Uh, and then we'll get back to that super sciencey stuff. Cool. Do you subscribe to intelligent life out there in the universe? I, I'm going to use the term aliens because that's just what people use. Uh, I don't really think about it that much because in my mind, even if there was, because, so here's the thing, there's like a hundred billion galaxies and, and billions of stars in each galaxy, so maybe. Um, but two things. One, the chance that it's just like us and we could even remotely communicate, even if we were next to each other, seems pretty freaking small to me. Um, and secondly, because of the speed of light being the limit, of how fast information can travel in the universe we could never talk to these people mm. so it, it, in my mind it's one of these things that doesn't matter because it will have no consequence on how we live our life like i understand that for people it will have a consequence in the sense that you know like oh we're not alone and there's other people in the universe but even if we find evidence of that we're probably not going to be talking to these people we're probably not going to be interacting Right. And, and so it doesn't, yeah. That's a good way to put it for sure. And the second is, um, it's like basically Star Wars. Do you think any time in the future, whether that's like the future of human life, like thousands of years, whatever, that intergalactic travel could somehow be a possibility? Um, so intergalactic is in within the galaxy? Sure, we'll go with that. Maybe. So, I'm, I, I don't think it would be impossible in, in, in the realm of possibilities, but not on a human life scale. So, for example, so the human race could conceivably explore the galaxy as a race, uh, but you won't live long enough to go from like one end to the other. The nearest planetary, like, um, sorry, star system that we know is four light years away. So even if you could move at the speed of light, it would take you four years to get there. Mm. Um, and moving at the speed that our rockets move now, you, did, you wouldn't make it. So as a race, maybe, especially if we can mine asteroids and, and make our own stuff and find our own stuff uh, um, on the way. Um, but... Um, Star Wars as it is, Star Wars is Star Wars because it has uh, faster than light travel. Star Trek is Star Trek because it has faster than light travel. That's how all of these like space fantasy worlds can exist in the interesting way that they do is because they have faster than light travel. And it's just not really possible in the realm of physics. Um, so it could exist, but not the way that we think of it because the big assumption is faster than light travel. Sorry, everybody, but you heard it. Sorry, <laughs> it could still be really interesting. I mean, if we made a giant rocket ship that could like self-sustain and everything, that would still be bloody awesome. Can you imagine that? And then oh, yeah. being the generation that discovers a star and like your grandparents will tell you about that star that you're heading towards and then your generation that finds it and it's really exciting and all of that. Like it could still be very exciting, but that's the kind of sci-fi that I've not read yet. Like I've right. not read sci-fi like that. Right. Um, what are some particular things that maybe like you've read that people are researching um, that like, you know, your colleagues, like what are some things being done right now that really excite you about, you know, the universe and things that are being done? Ooh, oh, that's a really good question. Uh, <laughs> I'm a, 
it's a difficult question to answer in a relatable way because I'm a nerd. And so I'm like, I get, I get sucked into rabbit holes of like statistics and machine learning and like, and techniques like that, that are not necessarily accessible, but uh, science was, well, Kilonovia are really cool, which is the main topic of my project. There's also all of just in general transient, what we call transient astronomy. So a transient is an object in the sky uh, that um, only lasts a small amount of time. So for example, a supernova goes bright and then within a few weeks it fades. A kilonova fades within a few days. Uh, but there's loads and loads and loads and loads of types of transients. And we're discovering more and more every year. So there's um, new things that, and we give them names that are crazy because we don't know what they are. So for example, this, uh, this uh, type of transient called fast blue transients. Not sure exactly how they come about, but uh, they come quickly, they disappear quickly, and they're very blue, so they're called fast blue transients. <laughs> There's also calcium-rich transients. Again, they're similar to other things, but different and in different locations. Not sure what's going on there, but it's full of calcium, so we'll call it calcium-rich. And it's a very astronomer-observer thing to be like, I observe a thing and I will give it a name. Doesn't matter what's behind it because I don't know yet. And then we'll just try and sort out the classification later, which we never do. That's why classifications in astronomy are an absolute mess. Um, but this is happening at the moment. Transient astronomy is going really big because we have telescopes that just scan the sky just without uh, a specific target. They just scan the sky to look for these new things, these new quote-unquote stars. And we've got a new telescope that's going to come online soon called the LSST, the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, which is going to have a giant field of view and can scan the sky like every three days, the entire sky. And you're going to find so many transients with that. You're going to find so many of these new things. And it's going to be able to tell us about what these like little stellar explosions are. Like, are these stellar explosions? Is the star dead? Is, has it just lost a bit of its outer envelope? Is it still there? Is it going to do it again? There's things like fast radio bursts, which like so many people are wondering what they are. Like that's a real exciting area of astronomy. It's, a, it's, it's what it says on the tin. It's a radio burst and it's fast. You know, that's, you know, happens quickly. Mm. Um, and so people wonder if it's, um, like uh, comes from black holes or come from neutron stars that quake. There was a paper last week about quark novae. So it would be a, a really dense object that turns into quarks instead of, uh, like it's even smaller than, than neutrons. Quarks are what makes neutrons and protons. Okay, so you're even going further, um, you're going even denser than a neutron star. And they were wondering if that could be what fast radio bursts are about. And so you get all of these crazy theories to try and explain it. And so that's what's going on at the moment. That's really exciting. Interesting, okay. Um, curious about galaxies. So mm -hmm. in my limited research of what I was trying to, um, you know, come up with to, to find some cool things about the universe that I, I could ask you about, one of the things that came up was cannibalistic galaxies. Yes. So what, when we talk about, is that like a galaxy crashing into another galaxy? Uh, am I on the right Yeah. I, so I guess that would be the merger of galaxies, which happens. Um, it's, it's something you, you, we even have pictures of that actually. Uh, and yeah. the Milky Way is doing it. Oh, <laughs> there's a, yeah, it is. Uh, there's a bridge between, oh, is it the small Magellanic cloud or the large Magellanic cloud? But there's like a stream of gas between the Milky Way and some of its nearby galaxies because it's bigger than them. And so it's the same concept of the, of the gravitational well right. of, you know, it, it warps space time, it creates a well. And if you get too close to the well, you fall in. Right. Um, and so it's the same co concept just on the scale of a giant galaxy instead of a tiny neutron star, but okay. same idea. And so these stars um, will get absorbed by, by the Milky Way eventually. Uh, Andromeda, the Andromeda galaxy, uh, is, if you're a Mac user, then you'll know because it's the background of a lot of Macs, of a lot of <laughs> Mac books. It's that galaxy. Um, um, yeah, that's, that's on its way to merging with the Milky Way in about, in a few billion years. Okay, so we got time. Whew. Yeah, we've, oh, we've got plenty of time. And the thing <laughs> is, when we think about merger of galaxies, like I said before, space is really empty. There's a lot of room between between the stars and so the stars are not going to collide 
that's not really going to happen. What's going to okay. happen though, is that the gas in the galaxy is going to uh, collide in a sense, and it's going to create new stars. So it's going to compress the gas and it's going to create uh, a new generation of stars. Interesting. Okay. And more things to study. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, dark matter is another thing that comes up a lot. Mm -hmm. um, can you explain that a little bit? I'm not sure. I know space is, again, one of those things that's so big. I don't know exactly what falls under all the, all, all the purviews of, of what people are studying. Um, but uh, like, can, can you explain it a little bit and how, how I'm not to use a bad pun, but like how it matters? <laughs> so okay so dark matter really isn't my area but yeah. i know the basic gist of it uh it's more like physics and cosmology um but i've got friends that uh study it um and um so there's a few things people sometimes get confused between dark matter and dark energy they're like they're different things so the universe in its energy budget right about five percent of that energy because you know mass and energy are like equivalent e equals mc squared einstein right, okay. all of that we are all somewhat familiar with that in in the general culture so matter energy similar um so five percent of this energy budget is in the form of ordinary matter so stars galaxies us all of that stuff about 25 percent is um dark matter and we know dark matter is a thing uh, because of the way that stars revolve around galaxies. So stars go around their galaxy, the center of that galaxy. And you can see at what speed they're going. And if you look at that uh, speed um, and you try to simulate what would happen if um, the only matter there was was the matter you see, then it doesn't match. So we know there is extra matter there that makes stars go around the way we do. Um, so that's one thing. And people argue <laughs> different things that I don't understand because it's physics. Like they've got these special particles and everything. Um, so some people used to think that it was maybe stars that you couldn't see. Uh, some people um, tried to shoehorn a different type of gravity called MOND, M-O-N-D. Oh. Um, you know, some people still think it's a thing. I don't really know. I, 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 don't, uh, I don't have any allegiance to any theory because I don't <laughs> understand it enough. Um, and there's lots of elementary particles. People used to think maybe neutrinos were the uh, dark matter, but it's not. Uh, neutrinos are really, really light particles that move pretty much at the speed of light, but they don't interact with you. The sun creates a lot of neutrinos and they go straight through Earth, like every second. Mm. Um, what is it seven billion neutrinos go through your thumbnail something like that pretty insane okay okay um but they're too light to be the dark matter we know so dark matter is a thing and then dark energy is a thing um about uh 70 percent of the energy that uh of the energy budget of the universe and that comes about uh from just general relativity, which is the general theory of gravity and how the universe works. Um, and uh, I wouldn't say it's a mathematical trick because it works, you know, it makes us understand the way the universe works, uh, but we don't really know where that energy comes from. Um, and, uh, and I don't really know what theories are about it because that's really deep into like cosmology, maths, like really, theoretical stuff that is pretty far removed from my side of astronomy which is more observer based like i see a star let me study it <laughs> like this stuff for me is it's it's like um it's it's like pure maths to me um and uh but uh, but yeah i've got a few colleagues that work on on dark matter and stuff like that and right. the the type of maths they do it's not the same. It's not the same maths <laughs> I do. Like the other day, it was so funny. They had, they were showing us a paper that they were interested in. We have a journal club like every week and we show a paper that we found interesting. And there was an equation and there was a square in it, just a square. Okay. And I was like, is that a typeset error or is that a mathematical like 
symbol and we're like oh yeah no it's just an operator like it, you get to the type of maths where you don't have numbers anymore you've got letters but you also have shapes it's just straight up shapes like we ran out of letters you've got shapes in it you've got triangles you've got squares and they mean different things and i don't know what they mean <laughs> uh, it's it's really crazy it's really uh, cool hieroglyphics going on yeah you know? yeah you look at this you're like i don't know what happens <laughs> um okay so i'm curious and we're going to circle back on when we were talking about gravity my other question is about the, the universe and you know i've heard read that it's infinite and it's constantly expanding. Yes. Does that like, uh, that's too big of a question. I was gonna ask like, does that it's, affect It's such a hard question. Now? I've had so many drunk arguments with people telling <laughs> me that it's not possible and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but it, it's, it's very difficult. how do we know it is? How do we know that it's constantly expanding and, and what does that mean? So the, the infinite, the, the, okay. So the universe is finite but unbounded, first of all. So finite means there's only so many stars and so many galaxies, which technically you could count and get to the end, right? Um, we know that because of some so thoughts experiments done in the 20th century. It's called um, uh, Albert's Paradox. Um, I can't remember how that's spelled. That's like first year of astronomy. That was a long time ago. Uh, first year at uni, I mean. And um, basically what it says is if the universe uh, was infinite in time, so was always the way that it was, which is what people used to think in the 19th century, and if it was infinite in size, then in any direction that we look at in the night sky, we should see a star because the light from that star has had infinite time to reach us. So it should reach us, right? And so if that was true, then the night sky would not be dark. Since the night, sky, the night sky is dark, we know that it can't be infinite because otherwise it would be as bright as a star. Um, so that's the, that's, that's the thing for the finite universe. Now we know that it's expanding because we can see that. Um, and it's a phenomenon that's called the uh, Doppler shift. So, and you can, you can, there is an intuition for it. So if you've got an ambulance that's coming towards you and then goes past you and going away from you, the sound from the siren changes, right? As it comes towards you, it gets more high pitch. And then as it moves away from you, it, uh, it's low pitch. And that's for sound, but for light the same thing happens except we don't have high pitch and low pitch we have blue and we have red so if something comes towards you really fast it will look bluer and if something moves away from you really fast it will look redder and that's something that observers uh, astronomers deal with all the time like you take an observation from a star that's really far away or a galaxy that's really far away you're going to have to account for it because it's not just a phenomenon that a phenomenon that happens it's a phenomenon that is very visible and that actually impacts your observations. So we know things are moving away from us. And we can actually measure at what speed they're moving away from us um, and, and, and all of that. And so what we've noticed is that the further away something is, the faster it's moving away from us. Um, and that's the expansion of the universe. And we know the expansion of the universe is accelerating because because of that, because of that curve, and because we've been able to measure things that are really far away from Earth, because supernovae are really bright. That's one of the probes we have. So they're so bright that you can see them in other galaxies that are really, really, really far away. So you observe the supernova, you know what kind of color, what kind of um, brightness it should have, um, and and you can deduce uh, how fast it's moving away from you. And, uh, right. and with that, you can build what we call the Hubble diagram, which I encourage people to Google. Uh, it's, a, it's not a difficult concept to, there's no, there's no maths. It's not a difficult concept to, uh, to, to grasp. And there's a good Wikipedia page on it. Um, and that's the expansion of the universe that we measure. Why, why is science, like why is communicating all this stuff really important to you because i know um when i found you on twitter you, you, were, you were talking about how you love doing outreach and, yeah. and explaining this why why is that something that you enjoy that that you're passionate about so 
on a personal level, I really love doing that because it also, it helps me rekindle my love with my love of science. Sometimes it's easy to get bogged down in the nitty gritty of my code is not working or this is not working. Like being a scientist um, in essence is having problems all day, every day and trying to solve them. Um, and so doing outreach and talking about, you know, the essence of what's interesting about science um, really helps you keep that picture, that big picture in mind. But I also think it's really important for people to be interested in science just in general, um, because scientific inquiry and the way that uh, you have to use critical thinking and the way that you have to learn how to read graphs and all of that basic stuff is actually very important, especially in the, the day and age that we live in, where there is so much information out there that people have to filter through. Um, and be able to use their critical mind to distinguish between what is true and what is false, to, just, to be able to distinguish between, you know, some media outlets that are trying to <laughs> make graphs that make things look the way that they're not. Uh, we've seen that with Fox News, mm. that they mess with graphs and everything. Um, but you need a basis for that. You can't just throw a graph at people and be like, here is how you learn to read a graph. That's boring. It's boring. But if there is some really cool and awesome science that and astronomy, I think is one of them, then it gives people a playground to learn all of these skills and to also learn really cool things about the universe and our place in the universe. And so I think it's really important for all of these reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before I let you go, I do, I do want to ask, cause, um, I don't have any kids, but I have two young sisters that are um, six and six and five. And I'm just, you know, I grew up in a small town. I reference that a lot on the podcast here in, in Canada, but the opportunity for them, like, I want the future to be, you know, like whatever they want to do. If they want to be yeah. an astrophysicist, I want to, I want to do that. I know the issue comes up. And I don't understand a lot about of all the nuances, but like the women in science and women in tech is a, is a big issue right now uh, mm -hmm. in conversation. I'm just curious, you know, what can we do as a society to help, you know, open those doors and then keep them open for, for, you know, young people, young women, young uh, pe people of color from different sexual background, whatever, how do we open the door for them? How can we help as, you know, regular everyday people um, push, push this forward? So if they want to go to space, they can do that. No problem. As long as they yeah. work hard. That's, that's a really good, uh, that's a really good question. So there are two main things. First of all, educate yourself on conscious biases, uh, research and conscious bias and, and you know, what they are and how you can, become more aware of them and combat them. That's, that's a really good thing to do. Um, about the um, women in STEM in particular, and especially for young kids, um, gender roles. Be aware of gender roles and try not to put people in a box. And I would say that for both men and women, because men suffer from gender roles just as much as women, in my opinion. Toxic masculinity um, is something that men suffer from just as much as women. Um, and, uh, I would encourage people to educate themselves on their, on, on that, because that's where you realize, um, how you might've been treating your daughter different from your son. Um, there's an excellent book called the gendered brain, which I highly recommend, mm -hmm. uh, written by Gina, uh, Repon. sorry, I'm reading it because I see it on myself. Um, <laughs> which is excellent for that um, because a lot of people uh, think, oh, men and women are just as good, but they're just different. But oftentimes it, they're not. Uh, what's different is the uh, gender roles and your expectations of men and women. So for example, um, women are so much more mature, although you know, oftentimes it's just because they are punished for the same things that boys are allowed to do. And so they have to up in a world where they have to be more mature they are held accountable for um <laughs> the bad mood of men and they have to uh deal with it and and um and uh and and, and police themselves um uh similarly men are not allowed to show emotion just as much or are made fun uh fun of for it or are not given the same amount of support and 
that's true in childhood as well. And that's a problem. Um, so I think that educating yourself on gender roles and starting early, you know, with kids, just not putting them in a box, you know, get, getting the girl her Legos if she fucking wants them. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and educating yourself on that. It's so, so, so important because gender roles get into kids' heads very early, very, very early. And not just from the parents, from society. And so you have to work extra hard as a parent to combat that because it's on television. It's in adverts. It's in books. It's everywhere. And it's problematic. Uh, we see it, it has an effect, not just in science, but in society. And for example, in science, even the women that are in science that have made it, um, we've had a very interesting article come up recently in, in Nature. Um, so with the pandemic, everyone's at home, right? Mm-hmm. So we've got to work from home, we've got to do childcare from home. Um, men's output in terms of number of papers has gone by 50%, roughly, and women's has gone down by 50%. Roughly, because women are carrying more of the burden of childcare and household chores. So, and that's not something that scientists themselves can really do anything about on a systemic level, because that's a problem with society. And so just, I would encourage parents to educate themselves about what gender roles they have evolved in and they might be imposing on their children without even knowing. Right. Um, well, listen, I really appreciate you joining me and, and giving me some time uh, in your morning uh, over in New Zealand. Um, if people want to get some more information, I know your Twitter is one of the most fabulous Twitters and I, I love it. Oh following. my God, thank you. Because uh, it, it's just like having the conversation with all these, you just post all these interesting stuff. So I love following along. Where can people find you? Do you have a website, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, podcast? Oh, I don't have a podcast, bless me. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a website. Uh, so my website is hfstevens.com. So just H for Eloise, F for Fanny, because that's my proper name and Stevens is my last name just all of that together.com and that's my website perfect and uh, we'll make sure I include a link in everything uh, and, and website and and do your twitter um really appreciate it like I said I, I was so excited to talk to you and uh it met every expectation and more so I really appreciate oh it thank you so much Ryan it was so much fun you had amazing questions oh thank you <laughs> all right take care okay bye, bye. <laughs> Take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit